So you've been practicing now for five days. Have you gotten anywhere? So when we practice in this way, in these conditions, uh, we sometimes have the mistaken notion that these conditions are really the only conditions in which we can awaken. That these very special conditions are set up for our awakening. And I know that from my own practice, um, sometimes when it starts to, when a retreat starts to wind down, comes a feeling of panic, right? What's going to happen when uh, these conditions come apart as everything inevitably does? And the culture that we live in is similar in the sense that it gives us um, a, a feeling that because, because there's really not a it's not a community-centered society or culture. Uh, so there are no natural enforcers of the sense of belonging. We can sometimes feel very deeply that feeling of separation and separateness. And then we keep saying that we're a culture of rugged individualism. So we sometimes you know, think we're all alone in the world, and that it's not a world that's particularly friendly to spiritual work. And here we are, sort of in our vacuum, working really hard to find freedom for ourselves. There's a cartoon of a Buddhist personal, tall, dark, handsome Buddhist looking for himself. Yet, if we're looking and seeing clearly, awakening is not just something that happens under these special circumstances, under this tight container, even though this container is very helpful and very supportive of um, deepening our practice. So once we leave, although I don't want you to start anticipating leaving yet. Um, And as a matter of fact, it's not even for when we leave, but how can we start manifesting the freedom that we find in this practice that we've been doing of uh, loving-kindness, cultivating the heart? Ram Das talks about practice as one of uh, cycles, and he says there are up and down cycles, and he says there is, in addition to the up and down cycles, an in and out cycle. There are stages at which you feel pulled into inner work, and all you seek is a quiet place to meditate and get on with it. And then there are times when you turn outward and seek to be involved in the marketplace. Both of these parts of the cycle are a part of one's practice. For what happens to you in the marketplace helps in your meditation. And what happens in your meditation helps you to participate in the marketplace without attachment. At first you will think of practice as a limited part of your life. In time you will realize that everything you do is a part of your practice. So I'd like to talk tonight about 
the the way in which we express metta. In a way, the verb of metta, which is uh, generosity. We, as we sit and practice and recite the phrases, underneath is a wish for all beings to be happy, a wish for the well-being and the happiness of all. And what we notice and what we realize is that metta is not seeking any benefit for itself. That as we make this wish for the well-being of ourselves, our benefactors, our difficult people, our our neutral people, um, our friends, and eventually all beings, what you may have noticed is that we're not asking for anything in return. That metta is... um, a way of sending out these wishes and not um, becoming attached to or preoccupied with the results of these wishes or not having any conditions for sending out the wishes. And essentially, generosity is an organic expression of this wish to be happy, for everyone to be happy. And it's a recognition in a way that when we send out these wishes, that what we are actually doing is connecting in a a real and true way with all of the other beings in, um, in our world, in our universe. And the reason that that can happen is because we're already connected that there isn't any separation, there isn't any way in which we left this net of which we are all a part. Martin Luther King expresses this beautifully. He says, it really boils down to this, that all life is interrelated. We are all caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. We are everlasting debtors to known and unknown men and women. When we arise in the morning, we go into the bathroom where we reach for a sponge provided for us by a Pacific Islander. We reach for a soap that is created for us by a Frenchman. The towel is provided by a Turk. Then at the table, we drink coffee which is provided for us by a South American or tea by a Chinese or cocoa by a West African. Before we finish breakfast, we have depended on half, on more than half the world. This is the way our universe is structured. This is its interrelated quality. We aren't going to have peace on earth until we recognize the basic fact of the interrelated structure of the universe. And if our destinies are so intertwined, it follows that strangely enough, I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. So if this is, if this is so, and the universe is naturally structured in this inescapable network of mutuality and we are constantly dependent in obvious and not so obvious ways on at least half of the world, then this uh, notion of generosity as the natural expression of the open heart that we are um, 
cultivating seems self-evident. It's not, um, it's not something that we have to put on. It's not something that we have to find outside of ourselves. It's not something that we have to um, make happen because we because it's some foreign um, idea to us or some foreign um, some part of ourselves that's some foreign part of ourselves. Rather, um, mutual interdependence then becomes mutual intersupport, and what we don't so we don't have to become generous. We simply have to get out of the way of the flow and not impede it, uh, the flow of our natural generosity. The earth flourishes by what Ralph Waldo Emerson calls the endless circulation of divine charity. The wind sows the seed, the sun evaporates the sea, the wind blows vapor to the field, the rain feeds the plants, the plants feed the animals. The very stars hold themselves on course through mutual en- interchange of energy. So we are, when we talk about generosity, we are really talking about a natural expression of the, the law as it is, as thing, of things as they are. When the Buddha taught, especially when he taught new students, people who didn't yet consider him their teacher, he would teach them uh, generosity, and that generosity he would not um, he would not teach them any fur- make, give them any further teachings until he felt that they had actually understood and incorporated um, this teaching on generosity. This is from Bhikkhu Bodhi, who is a wonderful Theravadan monk, scholar, who does much of the translations of the suttas as we know them. He's about generosity. He said, the practice of giving is universally recognized as one of the most basic human virtues a quality that testifies to the depth of one's humanity and one's capacity for self-transcendence. In the teaching of the Buddha, too, the practice of giving claims a place of special eminence, one which singles it out as being, in a sense, the foundation and the seed of spiritual development. Whenever the Buddha delivered a discourse to an audience of people who had not yet come to regard him as their teacher, he would start by emphasizing the value of giving. Only after they had come to appreciate this virtue would he introduce other aspects of his teaching. So this um, teaching on generosity, which the Buddha said was the first uh, the first paramita, the first perfection of a Buddha, the first um, guide to enlightened living, uh, we should see it not as a, a sort of foundational or introductory practice, but actually a core practice, which the Buddha many times in the suttas says, uh, without the understanding of generosity, there is uh, the heart cannot open to receive the teachings. So it's not as if we sort of hear teachings on generosity and then we say, oh, that sounds really good, and I, you know, yes, 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 I think it's a really good idea that everybody's generous, and then we move on to the really juicy stuff, right? It, it really is the juicy stuff. It is the way of uh, softening the heart and of um, preparing the heart to receive the wisdom teachings. So it requires the ability uh, to listen to ourselves, to know what is skillful in ourselves, to listen to timing, to seasons, to see what is necessary and what is required in every 
moment. And it's in the in understanding and noticing context and circumstances and surroundings. And therein lies uh, the the potential for wisdom and for the open heart. Mother Teresa uh, used to tell her nuns, whatever you have, just give it all away. Let them eat you up. (laughs) Yeah. And this is a capacity that we all have. It's not, as I said, not something that we um, have to go out and buy or that we have to that we have to find or pluck from the external world because it's not part of us it's actually an innate um, perhaps latent quality in all of us it may not be what we necessarily manif- manifest but it certainly is in all of us you've heard the stories of mothers finding the strength to pick up a car to save their child that comes from the power of the concern for another being. This is in all of us. But our culture is a culture of more and more and more and more. And we're taught that what is really important is security, that we have to have something that we can hold on to. And we're taught and conditioned to believe that there is a permanence that we we can find, some security that we can find. And then we grasp at, uh, whatever appears to be the thing that offers us that. But what we've been doing this week is sitting and pausing and looking and seeing and bringing a kind heart to every single moment so that we can actually see the truth of this moment, the truth of our being. And we've opened our eyes and opened our hearts and opened our beings. And when we do that, we begin to recognize the situation that we're in, the truth of our situation, the truth of our life, which is that everything is impermanent. There's nothing, 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 nothing. I'll say it again, nothing that we can ever hold on to. We never, ever, not even our bodies, we don't know how long we have. We rent them. And so instead of grasping, we rest in what Alan Watts calls uh, the wisdom of insecurity. And when we do that, there comes a flexibility and an opening that's natural to our being. And a preciousness, when we just see now and now and now, and with the metta practice we can actually bring that loving, open awareness to this thing we call now, and which we have uh, nothing else. So we sit and we feel the our life breath is coming in and going out. And as we reconnect with the impermanence of all things, we begin to connect with our Buddha nature, our basic and fundamental goodness, from which we begin to see that we can't possess anything. It's all impossible to possess anyone or anything, that nothing lasts, and that because nothing lasts, not, there's nothing that can be the true source of our happiness. We can love, and we can care for, and we can be deeply committed to uh, the people with whom we relate, but we can't possess them. And knowing that, we understand that in the end, it's our love and our generosity of heart how much we can give, not how much we have that matters. And then when we open in that way, we begin to treasure this 
interconnectedness that we are. We understand that the breath that we're taking now is the breath that Napoleon and Julius Caesar and all those who went before us had and that all those who will come after us will also have. That we breathe in and out and it's the same breath as the, it's the opposite breath to the trees as they take in the carbon dioxide and put out the oxygen and we take in the oxygen and put out the carbon dioxide and that we are as near to one another as our breath and that our actual practice of metta and of dharma lies just in how we treat each other. Nothing else. Nothing that we can get, nothing that we can have, nothing that we can accumulate and build up, but just how we treat each other. And that's a wisdom, you know, that's wisdom to actually understand that in a deep and simple way. We awaken this wisdom through our awareness and loving kindness. And when that wisdom is awakened, what comes is trust. And trust in that interconnectedness and trust in our generosity as a natural expression of who we are. And that trust is the trust that this small self is not all there is, but that it is a part of something much greater, much greater than the stories that we have about this pain in the body or this uh, feeling that is arising now or whatever the story is. We can rest in a much larger perspective of the billions of galaxies in which we live in something greater because even if we're even if the what we're now involved with is the pain in the knee or the um or or something more um sad or sorrowful as the um, the death of a loved one, or illness, or um, or loss, or whatever our pains and our sufferings, even those we know will change. So we don't have to grasp, because what we understand at a very deep level is that there's actually nothing, nothing to grasp. And so we look at our lives and we, we live, you know, in a pretty generous universe. And actually, as much as we have difficulties with, with, some of us may have difficulties with the policies of our country, the foreign policies of our country, when we look, we see that we're actually living in a pretty benevolent uh, place, even though the weather may be harsh at this time of year. It's still a benevolent place. We still have shelter, a place that we can keep warm, enough food to eat. Certainly, um, being at IMS and living in uh, this wonderful building and, and having enough food to eat and warmth for our bodies and clothing. And uh, I, I gather some places a hot shower and some places not so hot shower, but it's still pretty warm that it's pretty, um, it's a pretty benevolent environment in which we live. So we can sit and honor life with all of its dignity and let our life be a blessing for all with whom we come into contact. But in order to do that, we really have to be present with what is happening. The Buddha said we should become aware and know when the heart is attached and when it is free and unattached. Know when we're frightened and when we're unafraid. 
know when our actions come from kindness and know when they come from insecurity. So when we act with this mind that and heart that are being developed, that are clear and that actually can see truly and clearly, we can see very clearly what is motivating us. And this is the great um, practice in the practice of generosity. Because even when we're acting in service or in generosity, or we think we're acting in generosity, but we're acting really out of guilt or fear or to please someone else or to feel good or to feel righteous or out of fear of rejection and loss or to get a good reputation, then the actions will have a certain benefit, but they won't be lasting. And we'll burn out because they'll come from some idea of what we wish we were or some fear from a a much deeper place and uh, some fear but not from a deeper place out of our uh, basic goodness. And generosity is, the foundation of generosity is not fear or attachment or aversion but actually um, basic and fundamental goodness. So we can honor our uh, limits when we are acting generously and we can know ourselves and not act out of some idea of the way we think we ought to be rather than out of the truth of what the situation is. And we can include in our, we can include whatever um, state we're in, whether it's a state of um, feeling depleted or feeling as if we have nothing more to give or whatever that state, whatever our state is, even if it's a state of I can't do, I can't do one more thing, we don't have to start with great heroic acts or with um, large, um, larger than is wise donations to this or that place or to give more of our time or more of our energy than uh, taking care of ourselves requires. Rather, we can start small. As Mother Teresa said when someone asked her how she um, achieved such great things, she said, I didn't do anything great. I just did small acts with great love. And so our generosity, when we talk of generosity in the, as the verb of metta, we're not, real, we're not saying that there's a should or there's a must or there's a requirement that goes beyond whatever uh, you are capable of. But at the same time, it means that you really must look at your motivation as well as your ability so that uh, when, when you act in, a way of, in the way of generosity, in the way of cultivating generosity, you're acting out of a place of truth and not a place of should or uh, self-deprecation or going beyond what is wise. And much of what we have to offer is our sanity and our simplicity and our integrity and our respect. So we can include ourselves in our uh, generosity. And one person who brings sanity into a place of insanity can make an enormous difference. Thich Nhat Hanh talked about um, how when the people were coming over from Vietnam and in the boats and there'd be rough seas and, and a panic, that 
unless there was a per- one person in that boat who could be counted on to stay calm and serene and equanimous in the midst of that trouble that the boat would sink. And so much of the time, what we bring is our sanity and our serenity and our equanimity. And it's your great gift that you can give to others, whether you do it as service or you do it as um, a gift of material things or a gift of simple presence. What, what matters most is the motivation that you bring to the gift, not um, necessarily the amount or the, um, or the, fa- or the, the, the content of the gift, but actually the way in which it is brought. When we um, practiced in Burma, the incredible generosity that has been a part of the tradition, of, of the Buddhist tradition from the time of the Buddha, um, became very clear and very present every time we sat down for a meal. What would happen at the meals would be that what, what we could see very clearly is that the monks would, bring, would invite lay people into their very tranquil, tranquil and um, beautiful surroundings, both to practice and to just actually visit the monastery. And as Americans, we would, um, we would come to this monastery. The monastery would never charge anything for you to come and practice. And it didn't matter if you came for a week or a year or however long you came to practice. What was... Um, the system that was set up by the Buddha that's been carried on for the the full 2,600 years is that the community that surrounds the the monastery supports the monks. And so as Americans, we would go, we went and, and practiced, and we became included in that whole system of generosity. And when I first got there, I I found it a little bit unnerving because Burma, it's clear, is a very, very poor country. And as you travel around, that becomes enormously clear. And um, when we'd go for meals, the first couple of days it was even more unnerving because we would sit down in the dining hall and all of these people, these Burmese people would come in, you know, and it would be great families of children and aunties and uncles and grandmothers and mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and cousins and, you know, families of 10 people or 12 people would come and sit in the dining hall and watch us. They wouldn't eat. They wouldn't do anything but just sit very respectfully at a distance and watch us eat. And what, what was explained to us was that these people were the people who had supplied the meal. And what was very moving to them would be to come and watch us enjoy the meal that they had donated. Because the generosity 
their generosity would give them such great pleasure and their generosity in connection with people who were meditating. That the very notion that they could support this practice in the world meant more to them than anything. And it was very clear to me that um, sometimes, you know, it, the, the meal would be donated by people who owned a jewelry store or, you know, were probably doing okay. Um, but sometimes it was clear that these meals were donated by people who were much poorer, much poorer than we were. And as I, as I investigated it and thought about it and reflected on it, I realized that what they were supporting was what is um, recited in the, um, in, the, in, the, in the chants of the, the monasteries um, that the monastics are, give occasion for incomparable goodness to arise in the world. And that by definition, the fact that we were in the monastery practicing meant that we were also giving occasion for incomparable goodness to arise in the world. And so this generosity that they were giving was really a generosity not so much to us, but to themselves, because of the fundamental recognition of the interrelatedness that they feel with um, with all beings. And so if they give occasion for goodness, to, they support the occasion for goodness to arise in the world, then they are becoming the direct, bene- the direct beneficiaries of that generosity. And so we can give um, all, not only of uh, material things, but also... Um, service, we can give fearlessness and forgiveness, and we can give presence. I remember the comedian George Carlin um, saying that what he loved to do was to go through a toll booth and say, I'm paying for the guy next behind me too, right? So he would pay for the guy's toll and then just sort of slow his car down and watch as the guy approached the toll booth and the toll booth guy waved him on and then explained to him that his toll was already paid for. And so, you know, there's a, there's a great pleasure that we get in generosity. We sometimes think that when we, um, when we express our generosity that, it, that we get so involved in the object or in the subject of our generosity or in um, planning and plotting how much we can give and you know um, what's okay and what's not okay, that we forget to turn our attention to the state of mind that is generosity, to turn our attention to this wholesome motivation that gives us the impulse to give, that gives us the impulse to actually share in this benevolent universe in which we live. And I wonder, as I've traveled um, around the world in different places, especially in, in third world or developing countries, and seen the generosity that is part of the culture, what the difference is between uh, cultures where there is such poverty, there's grinding poverty. Uh, my my home, my birth home is is Jamaica, and when we go back to Jamaica, I'm always reminded of the of the way in which the community lives. The way in which the community lives is that because there is poverty everywhere, everybody knows that when they are fortunate, that what they need to do is to support the community with their good fortune. Because one day, they will be in the position where they need to be supported. 
So there's this openness of heart that happens and this non-distinction between who I am and who you are because there is a there is an, an innate understanding that in any moment I could be in your position and you could be in mine. And it comes from just um, the willingness to not defend, the willingness to have the heart so open that there is a basic and deep understanding that this life is not one to be defended, but a gift to be shared. The Dalai Lama calls it selfish altruism. He says that if you really are selfish, you would be generous and kind because it gives you such great joy. So that in the service of your own happiness, the most important thing is this generosity. And if you look in your, in your world, what you'll notice is that there's generosity everywhere. That there are acts of generosity being extended to you at every turn. When someone stops for a red light, that's an act of generosity. When you're crossing the street and the motorist stops and waves you on, do you really understand that as an act of generosity? And what that means is that he or she has transcended his own need and his own self-absorption or her own self-absorption to consider your need. One of the um, ways in which we lend our hearts and our generosity to others is just through the gift of presence. I'm moving into a different relationship with my aging mother who is beginning, whose memory is beginning to fade and shift a bit and who is um, an incredibly uh, sweet person, but who is beginning to feel the effects of her age and um, so sometimes gets a bit scared and a bit um, frustrated when she knows that her memory isn't working. And when she first um, started to lose her memory, I panicked. And I wanted more than anything for her to be the gregarious and um, smart and wonderful person that she had always been. And so I would spend time with her and she would say, well, um, where are we going? And I'd tell her. And then we'd go on and talk about something else and then she'd say, where are we going? And then I'd tell her. And then we'd talk about something else and then she'd say, where are we going? And then I'd tell her. And then I'd get frustrated and impatient and... Um, 
say, you know, you need to concentrate. You need to concentrate because you, if, you, if you concentrate, then you'll really get it, right? You'll be able to really hold on to what I'm telling you. And we went on like this for, for several months, actually. And then I was talking to a friend about it and saying, you know, I really don't know how to, how to help her. I don't know how to um, help her to keep, to, to exercise her mind in such a way that she'll keep her memory, etc. And he said, Gina, she's 87. She's starting to let go. And perhaps it might be a really good idea if um, you were just with her in that process. And I went, duh. (laughs) You mean I actually have to be with things the way they are rather than the way I'd like them to be? And it was the most amazing thing because as... As as soon as he said that, I you know I thought, oh, this is what I teach. <laughs> and so I thought, well, maybe it's a really good idea, right, to practice it. And the next time I was with her, you know, she'd say, well, where are we going? And I'd say, you know, we're going to such and such a place, and. And we'd talk about something else and she'd say, where are we going? And I'd say, well, we're going to such and such a place. And then, you know, the same process would happen over and over and over again. And then what began to happen is our conversations started to take a totally different turn. And as I began to open my heart to the situation as it was, rather than I wanted it to be, and actually just stayed present with wherever she was in that moment, she began to relax. And then as she began to relax, her memory wasn't so bad. Because, and the re- it's not that it's, you know, recovered, but her memory wasn't so bad because she was relaxed and easy and didn't feel as if she needed to be somebody for me that I wanted her to be. And what I realized at that point is that, oh, this is generosity. This is a true act of um, selfless service to actually accept another being for exactly who they are at the stage that they are, when they are, and where they are. That this ability of my own mind and heart to open to that rather than to be caught by things as they were or things as I wish them to be was a true act of generosity. And I actually took the Buddha's instructions to turn to that feeling in my own heart um, of to, to really observe right in that moment what the feeling was in my own heart of that um, extension of generosity. And it was amazing. It was an amazing, amazing um, transformation of my relationship with my mother, an amazing transformation of her relationship with me, and nothing was done, really. There was, there was nothing but an open hand and an open heart. So our practice can actually help us to notice those occasions when we hold back or we fear to relate and to give because of our own stuff, you know, our own ideas, our own thoughts about the way things should be. And when we consciously begin to cultivate a more generous response. Slowly, when we do that, the whole spirit of uh, giving and joy will open and grow in us. And this um, opening will affect all of the other realms 
of our practice as well. This practice of generosity as the expression of our loving heart is not a practice that we ever stop doing. It's not one that we ever um, say, okay, I'm cooked, I've done it, I'm ready, I've, you know, I don't. It's, it's the noticing every moment, from moment to moment to moment to moment, every opportunity that we have to open, to relate, to give, and to cultivate as generous as a response as we can. We do it for our own sake. And when we do it for our own sake, we do it for the sake of all beings. So let's sit. inescapable network of mutuality. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.